1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. The Beijing Winter Olympics are underway with some politically frosty relations underpinning the event. So this week, we're debating boycotts in sport. Our host on the show today is Andrew Muller, journalist and foreign affairs specialist. He's also the host of the Foreign Desk podcast on Monocle 24. But Andrew is a sports fan too, whose most recent book, Carn, looks at the history of a game dear to his heart Australian rules football. Here's Andrew with more.
0: Hello, I'm Andrew Muller. It's the Sunday debate, and we're looking forward to a fair contest, game of two halves, winner takes all, and whatever other sporting metaphor you're having yourself. Because on February 4th, the 2022 Winter Olympics opened in Beijing. Not for the first time in Olympic history, the Games will begin amid controversy over the propriety of the venue. China is regularly and rightly criticised over its record on human rights, most recently as regards its systematic oppression of the Uyghurs, a Muslim minority in Xinjiang province. The US administrations of Presidents Donald Trump and Joe Biden have accused China of waging genocide. The United States, along with Canada, Australia and the United Kingdom, is conducting a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Games. No representative of their governments will accompany their athletes. But should the athletes really be playing hockey against representatives of a country accused of the worst of all crimes? And if they did stay home, would it make any difference to anything? So, this week's debate motion is boycotting sporting events helps no one. Joining us to discuss it, we have Laura McAllister, Professor of Public Policy at the Wales Governance Centre in the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University. Laura is board director at the Football Association of Wales Trust and Deputy Chair of UEFA's Women's Football Committee. She also stood for election as UEFA representative on the FIFA Council in April 2021. And not only that but Laura also won 24 caps and had the honour of being captain of the National Women's Football Team of Wales. Joining Laura is Fred Frommer, sports historian and writer. Fred is head of sports public relations at WPP's Dewey Square Group in Washington DC. Fred has also written on the intersection of sport and politics for publications including the Washington Post and the New York Times. His latest book is You Gotta Have Heart, Washington Baseball from Walter Johnson to the 2019 World Series Champion Nationals. Welcome both. Thank you for joining us here on the Sunday debate. Um, Fred, I would like to start with you and a, a bit of history. Would it be fair to say, Fred, at least in your estimation and and by way of setting up the premise here, that, that basically boycotts of this sort don't actually work?
2: I would say that's pretty true. There have been a couple of times where um, invitations were withdrawn nations that were going to appear such as South Africa and Rhodesia in the late 60s and early 70s after boycotts were threatened from African nations. But you haven't really seen an Olympic really being relocated from its host city as a result of a boycott effort. It just hasn't hasn't worked, even in the most egregious cases.
0: Um, Laura, what do you think? Has there ever been any indication that they have I guess, positively influence the behaviour of the country being boycotted?
3: I think that's very difficult to prove and, generally speaking, measured against the objective of a boycott. Most sporting boycotts haven't worked. But that's not to say they don't have a function or a role or can't make some gains. I think... Where they have made gains, it's been because there's been a very clear objective that can unite a lot of people, a lot of different stakeholders from governments to athletes to coaches to viewers to fans. And then there can be a a real impact. Probably not exactly what is being presented as the objective of the boycott. I mean, if you just take the nineteen. 80 Moscow Olympics. If the objective was to remove Soviet troops from Afghanistan, then clearly it didn't work. However, the impact of raising awareness and knowledge of what was happening was probably a success of the boycott. So I think the answer to that question depends very much on how the objective of the boycott is articulated and discussed amongst the wider population. Uh,
0: Fred, let's go back in history a bit, because I mean, probably the most famous example when people talk about the Olympics being held in inappropriate locations, we're thinking about Berlin in 1936. Now, by 1936, I think it's fairly clear to anybody who was paying any attention what sort of regime was in charge in Germany and what that regime wanted the Olympic Games for. Um, Was there much talk among other countries at the time of just simply not going to Berlin? Uh, Yes,
2: that was the case, especially the United States. So just a little bit of a backstory on that is that in 1931, the International Olympic Committee uh, invited Berlin to host the Games. This was two years before Hitler took power, so there wasn't any of that baggage at that point. In fact, ironically, the idea was to welcome Germany back into the world of nations following its isolation after World War I. But by uh, 1933, there was uh, some concern, um, to put it mildly, and um, the International Olympic Committee uh, stated that Berlin would have to prove that it was going to treat its Jewish athletes fairly in order to host the Games. So, what Germany did was very uh, Machiavellian, not surprisingly. Uh, They took this issue seriously. They were very worried about a boycott, especially from the United States. So they had the head of the American Olympic Committee, Avery Brundage, come for a tour in 1934 to take a look at how great Germany was doing, you know, a complete whitewash of what the country was all about. He came back very easily, convinced and stated that uh, Jewish athletes were in fact being treated fairly, and uh, there'd be no reason for the United States or other countries not to participate. Um, he got a lot of pushback. He was already, even back in '34, called a, a Nazi stooge and things theoretically escalated from there.
0: Laura, when we think about 1936 in particular, does it also contain within it the argument against the boycott? Because, of course, the one thing everybody remembers about the 1936 games was that Jesse Owens, the, the, the great African-American sprinter, went to Berlin representing the United States and rather made the case uh, against the Nazis' ideology of Aryan supremacy.
3: Yes I think people's memories and the history of the 36 Berlin Games are very much shaped by Jesse Owens incredible successes on the track and that was of course the polar opposite of what was intended by by Hitler in terms of his uh, portrayal of the new Germany that he was pushing so clearly boycotts can be very have very different results to those intended the other, the other point I think you could say safely about the 36 games is that it also demonstrates how hard it can be to coalesce support around a boycott if the country that's driving a boycott, let's say, doesn't have the cleanest of hands on the issue itself. And I think when you talk about issues of race and so on, clearly the US hardly had a a wonderful record in terms of racial equality. And therefore, I mean, Fred is far more expert than me on the history of this, but it seems to me, from my understanding, that there was ambivalence about a potential boycott, partly because the US didn't have a great record on race relations and racial equality as well.
0: Fred, what do you think? Does it undermine the effectiveness of a boycott if the nation leading the boycott is susceptible to exactly those charges, as, of course, the United States in 1936 uh, very much was? I mean, Jesse Owens, as you will know, had not back in the United States actually been able to stay in the same building very often uh, as his white teammates, whereas ironically, perhaps he could in Nazi Germany.
2: Absolutely. In fact, I saw um, a documentary recently where Jesse Owens talked about how he was able to ride in the front of the bus in Berlin, and obviously a lot of black athletes couldn't do that in the United States. It was a really fascinating split in the US, black community. The NAACP, the nation's oldest, um, most prominent civil rights group, was very forcefully in favor of a boycott. Not only did they favor a boycott of the United States, but they pressured individual black athletes, including Jesse Owens, not to participate. Um, So you had that dynamic and it really kind of undercut what was happening nationwide. You had, it was almost like a left-right divide, or at least the effort, the fuel of the boycott was really left-wing. It was um, left-wing groups, Democrats, some communists, and some Republicans. But they really weren't, they weren't a united front because a lot of black athletes and Black Americans of all stripes uh, really pushed back about uh, about this. Um, they thought it was unfair to single out black athletes, and they made the point that you both made that you know where are we to lecture another country about discrimination when our country treats athletes so poorly, not only in discrimination but uh, in, in society, but also in sports. You know, it was um, another decade before Jackie Robinson would break the color barrier. Ironically, the, uh, the younger brother of Mac Robinson won the silver medal in Berlin. So the United States was in a terrible place, especially in the South, when it came to race relations, and it really undercut the argument that uh, boycott proponents made, really with, with good intentions.
0: Laura, do we also reach a point, bringing the idea of the boycott a bit further forward in history, that once there's too many of them, they stop being effective, that it just becomes background noise? And thinking, of course, of the the tit-for-tat boycotts of the early 80s, you mentioned earlier the the boycott by many countries of Moscow in 1980 uh, over the invasion of Afghanistan, which the Soviet Union then answered in 1984 in what appeared, frankly, a, a gesture of petulance. Um, of boycotting the Olympic Games in Los Angeles.
3: Yeah, I mean, clearly those two Olympics reflect the kind of seesaw effect of muscle flexing in terms of political sporting boycotts. But I think, you know, we mustn't underestimate the impact of the boycott of the Moscow Games, because I think that was the biggest ever boycott in terms of the number of countries who took part, you know, around about 80, so more than half of the countries that were actually due to participate. So I think it did have that incredible impact, not just on the Games as they took place, but subsequently in terms of Olympic history, you know, because so many countries were actually missing Purely on a sporting level, you know, it's very hard to judge the results of events in the Moscow Games because 80 countries were actually missing. So, in that respect, it had a significant impact. The LA Games, of course, where the Soviets and several of its allies did engage in the tit for tat boycott. Um, was a much smaller one. Nevertheless, some of the big countries and important countries, especially in certain sports, were missing. So I think that is significant. But you make the point about whether regularity and familiarity of boycotts weakens their impact. Um, I'm not sure that's entirely the case. For me, it's much more a case of whether the objective of the boycott is properly explained and articulated. So if you take the case of China and the uh, Winter Olympics in Beijing. Despite the diplomatic boycotts, is anybody really clear what is hoped to be gained from that boycott? You know, is there something specific? You know, is, is it is it the Chinese tennis player and having a, a greater profile for some of the human rights abuses that are going on? Or is there something more specific in terms of the objective and the goal of that boycott? And I think that takes us back to the real heart of the conversation here, which is, You can only claim they work if the objective that they articulate is actually achieved at the end of it.
0: Is there an argument that they can work perhaps not necessarily in in the way or for the reason that might have been intended. Again, if we go back to Moscow 1980, uh, obviously this did not precipitate a withdrawal of the Red Army from Afghanistan. They stayed there for nearly another decade. But is there any argument, perhaps, that the citizens of the host country being boycotted maybe start thinking about, why is everybody so angry with us? Is it possible that we're the problem? Can it ever be the source of, perhaps, useful conversations among the citizens? of the boycotted country?
3: Well, it can be in theory, but I think the problem we've got is that we're talking about largely authoritarian regimes. So the extent to which citizens are able to engage and are free to engage with the world's media are usually constrained in most of those countries. You know, you could say the same for Russia and the World Cup in 2018. And no doubt we will be saying the same uh, about Qatar and the World Cup this coming winter. So it's problematic, isn't it? Because The reason that these boycotts are taking place is usually for reasons of authoritarianism or exclusion. And therefore, the extent to which the citizenry can really engage with an alternative politics is usually constrained. So that poses some real problems in terms of a more optimistic take on boycotts, which is that at least there is a debate on the issue. And it's a a debate with some equilibrium and with some fairness. I'm not sure in China there is taking place now a serious debate about the human rights abuses that we're all aware of not even to mention the genocide um, of of the Ouija community then you know if that was really happening you could make the claim for a successful boycott if not I struggle to see how that could be deemed successful.
1: code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV.
0: Fred... There's a different sort of sporting boycott that I can think of, though, of which we have seen at least one example in the back half of the 20th century. And this is not the boycott of a particular event, but the boycott of effectively an entire entire country, which was South Africa, which was just excluded for obvious reasons from international sporting events of all kind. If we look at that isolated case, uh, and obviously apartheid was uh, brought to a conclusion by the mid-1990s, is it possible to quantify the extent to which the isolation of South Africa's sporting teams accelerated that process?
2: I think so. I thought, you you know, you saw in the 1960s, uh, late 60s into early 70s, uh, this movement to isolate countries like South Africa and Rhodesia, and, and they were very effective. And it, it was, you know, Avery Brundage was the head of the International Olympic Committee at the time. Uh, back in 36, he was head of the American Olympic Committee. So he had been really at the bulwark of uh, opposing any kind of what he would call mixing politics or sports, what other people would say standing up for what is right. So he was very much against any of these movements, but even he like, couldn't really stop them because there, were, there was a vote took place among the countries uh, to exclude both South Africa and Rhodesia. And you did see how effective it could be, not only with uh, the nations threatening boycotts, but then you had some black American athletes who had signed on to efforts and said that they weren't going to go. So, I think you make a good point that the efforts when you try to isolate a country from participating, in a country that has a terrible human rights record. Uh, Those have been effective in a couple of occasions, whereas we haven't seen it really work in in the case of moving games out of a city.
0: Laura, there is of course a a very niche Olympic boycott attached to South Africa, which often gets forgotten, which is that in 1976, the Montreal games was boycotted by several African countries who objected not to South Africa, but to New Zealand, uh, who had been playing rugby with South Africa. I mean, I know for obvious political reasons, it's probably unimaginable that organisations like FIFA or the International Olympic Committee would take a stand like this. But can we imagine that it would have an impact if the world decided that, for example, it was no longer going to play sports against Saudi Arabia or North Korea or indeed the People's Republic of China, just on human rights grounds?
3: I think that would be the single most powerful intervention, but as you say, is the least likely to happen. Because, you know, if you take the case of China and the Winter Olympics – Even if a boycott of the Winter Olympics was much more widespread and much more concerted, we know that one of the aims of the Chinese president is to host a World Cup by 2050. And at the moment, FIFA could well be regarded as pretty warm towards that idea. Who knows? It might be well before 2050 that China hosts a World Cup. So therefore, it's another example of how difficult it is to align all of the key players um, if you really want to instigate political change, you know, what what good would it be, even if, if this were to happen, and it's not going to happen, there was a widespread boycott of the Chinese Winter Olympics in Beijing, if within five years, China's awarded a World Cup by FIFA. So, you know, I, I, th- I think... The, the difference between what we're seeing now in terms of piecemeal boycotts and the more sustained three decade long campaign against apartheid is very, very different because you know that was a much more populist movement as well. We saw activist groups you know Peter Hayne, a prominent politician in Wales and the u k was instrumental behind stopping the south Africa tour of the, of um of England. Cricket wise in nineteen seventy and then the Lions Tour was pulled in nineteen eighty six and all of this came from popular activism as well as political engagement. And and it's back to my point about the need to have a kind of multiple actor Uh, impact if if the boycott is going to be successful. Um,
0: Fred, as we mentioned in the introduction to this debate, there is a boycott of sorts uh, attending the Winter Olympics, which is this diplomatic boycott, which will be observed by the US, UK, Australia, Canada, possibly others. Um, Is that the kind of thing that is actually going to make any meaningful difference? The Chinese are obviously miffed by this. They have, well, not using exactly that phrase, but they have made it pretty clear that MIFT is what they are. But is that going to actually alter anything, or is it just the kind of thing that allows those countries, aside from saving on a few airfares for politicians and civil servants and diplomats, to say, look, we took a stand, we made a difference, we're the good guys?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think you're right. There's really It's not going to be that effective. Getting back to what Laura said, referring to the uh, tit-for-tat Olympic boycotts of the 80s, uh, there's already a Chinese state publication threatening a boycott of the U.S. Olympics in L.A. in, in 2028. I don't think they're going to do that over this diplomatic boycott. The consensus really uh, among historians is that they uh, they really hurt the athletes themselves more than accomplish anything. So you know, this is, I feel like, what the U.S. and other countries thought was the best they could do under the circumstances, but I don't think it's going to have much of an impact.
0: Laura, if there had been a point at which you were playing for and especially captaining Wales, uh, and there had been a fixture in a country whose human rights record was, for whatever reason, less than optimal, would you have considered not going?
3: It's a really hard question to answer, Andrew, because it's hypothetical for me, you know, that that never arose. But Mm. I'd like to think that as an athlete who had a political conscience, that I would have seriously considered that and I would have evaluated the impact and the importance of myself taking part in a boycott, but also the wider team. I think a responsibility of a captain of an international team is to also discuss and make aware of the team members of the political environments into which you you go. It's not the same thing, but when I was captain of Wales, we traveled to Croatia um, shortly after um, Croatia became independent, you know, still effectively war-torn. And we talked a lot about the politics of what it had had what had happened before we went to belarus um you know, which was obviously a communist um country, we talked about the poverty that was so visible on the streets there, so I think I think i would I'd like to think that we would have had a serious conversation about it, but you know as as Fred said a moment ago, the athletes in many respects are the least powerful actors in all of these situations, you know they often get sucked into a kind of groundswell of political progress on a boycott and people forget that these major major events like the Olympics and World Cups and so on happen only every four years so for an athlete to miss a major event can often be career defining if if the athlete is at his or her peak at that moment. Now, that's not to say that the athlete's more important than the politics, but it's interesting that athletes' voices still are generally ignored. And for me, that comes from this weird kind of, Almost counterintuitive idea that sports and politics don 't mix you know for me that 's crazy you know there 's as much politics in sport as there is in real politics and and politics affects sports you can 't talk about them not mixing, and equally then you must expect athletes to have political voices, small p political voices i I still don 't think athletes are given the latitude and the freedom to actually express themselves in a Political environment, and it would be much healthier if they were to be given that. Uh,
0: Laura, just to follow that up, you you have touched on a point that I did want to raise in this part of the debate. You you, you said there that. Athletes are often the least powerful players uh, in these scenarios. But is that really true? Because what our listeners cannot see uh, is that behind you uh, on your wall is that photo from the 1968 Mexico City Games, Uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos each hoisting a black gloved fist and my compatriot Peter Norman uh, there on the silver medal place on the podium that's one of the most powerful photographs ever taken. That was a gesture that went around the world and is still uh, remembered more than half a century later. Is it actually arguable that athletes haven't yet figured out how powerful
3: they actually are? That's, that's sort of my point, Andrew, really. I think when athletes' views and objectives chime with a wider context, the might of the athlete is phenomenal, as we saw there with Tommy Smith and John Carlos, for all the reasons you 've outlined. But I think what we 've tried to do in sport is almost suffocate um, the voice and the profile of the athlete beyond the sporting arena, and I think that 's wrong you know we, we We have some women footballers, for example playing everywhere in Europe at the moment, who are very, very active around issues of sexism and homophobia and racism in football, much more so than male footballers. And I think that's good. It, you might say that's because they've got less sponsorship attached to them, less kind of monetary value. Therefore, they're, they feel it's less risk. But nevertheless, you know, if you look at women's football compared to men's football, and I don't want to take us off track here, but it is relevant, I think. There's a reason why there are so many more out female players than there are out male players in terms of their sexuality. And that's because I think women footballers generally have been more politicized and more aware and because they've had to battle for the uh, status that they've had. It's completely anomalous, isn't it, to think there isn't a single out gay male player in the major leagues across Europe. Mo- you know, Some have come out when they've retired, but none when they're actually playing. I mean, that's incredible, really. And I think there is an issue about status and confidence that is almost gender based as well.
0: Um, Fred, is there, though, perhaps a way here that the idea of the sporting boycott can be turned into something effective in that if the activism becomes something led by the athletes themselves rather than the governments of the countries they're representing?
2: Absolutely. You think that if an athlete-led boycott would be much more effective, I just think it would be much less likely um, because, as Laura mentioned, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a lot of these athletes. and. You don't really see that happen very often with a few exceptions. I will say, just to pivot slightly, um, looking back in the mid-30s, ahead of the 1936 Olympics, even though that Olympic boycott campaign failed in the United States, and with it basically other campaigns in other countries withered as well, I wouldn't say that it was all for naught. I mean, it was very important that there was this debate in the United States about whether to participate. I think it uh, certainly uh, was good that the media shined a lot of attention on how terrible the German government was, as if people didn't know. But there was more attention brought to it. There was a lot of debate around it. And uh, I think that these things can be effective. Even you, you look at it right now in China, I think a lot more people know about the plight of the Uyghurs, for example. Uh, than they would have known beforehand. so the, these debates are important they're they're effective in the sense of consciousness raising. It's just that they, generally are, are not effective in terms of the ultimate goal, which is to change the location.
0: Fred, I'll follow this up with you. What I want to explore here is the idea that maybe it's not boycotting that's the most effective thing that you can do. It's the it's the turning up um, and yet using your prominence when you turn up to try and make your case. For example, a, a specifically American example, if Colin Kaepernick had merely decided to make his protest by saying, well, I'm just not going to play. That would have been forgotten, I think, anyway, a lot more quickly than the gesture he did make, which was turning up, playing, and taking a knee during the national anthem.
2: Yes, athletes have incredible platforms. And, you know, historically, it really varies by sport, but historically, there has been the ambivalence about using it. Uh, you don't want to alienate half your fans, uh, which is kind of the, the general uh, attitude. But we've seen a lot more of it um, in the last couple of years, after the racial awakening in the United States, for sure. Especially in baseball, baseball players have been the most conservative. I use that small C, in the sense that they don't really, they haven't really taken stands the way that Colin Kaepernick and other athletes in football and basketball have. But you saw baseball players take a, more of a stand than they ever had in the past, and it does have an impact. Athletes speaking out. Um, it might be hard to do it in Beijing for obvious reasons, but perhaps uh, afterwards or, or or leading up to it, there is a way to elevate these issues with uh, attention brought on by the athletes themselves.
0: Laura, it is especially powerful, isn't it, when it's an athlete of the absolute stratospheric uh, upper reaches of their sport who does decide to take their stand. And we saw that example quite recently when there was those two Grand Prix towards the end of the last Formula One season held in Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Uh, and we saw Sir Lewis Hamilton, the then reigning champion, not boycotting the meetings. And and there is an argument, I think, in both of those cases that if Lewis Hamilton of all people had said, well, I'm not going to race, then if the races had been able to go ahead, then nobody would have taken them seriously. But he did turn up and he did race, and he did do it, of course, wearing uh, that rainbow spangled helmet uh, as a gesture of outreach to LGBTQ people in Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and indeed around the world. Does that kind of gesture work effectively, do you think? Does it move a conversation along?
3: Well, I think it has the potential to, and it certainly is an example of effective consciousness raising. But it's back to my point about the impact of that in the country that is effectively discriminating against LGBT people, because we don't have any evidence really to show that Lewis Hamilton's gesture resonated as powerfully there as it did maybe in the Western world. And I think that's the risk, really, that we are judging uh, awareness and conversation and debate and challenge around discrimination by our own standards. Um, And that's where it's so problematic to assess the actual impact of something. I mean, as, as an aside, I think when athletes engage on a causal basis so not against a country as it often feels in political boycotts but on a causal basis whether that's about racial discrimination um, or about gender inequalities because I think there's a whole dimension of sport where there is such structural inequality with regard to women, you know, just take Iran, Saudi Arabia, where, never mind the ones we've talked about already, where the rights of women are so constrained. When athletes engage on a causal basis around such issues, I think they can actually have a big, big impact. The problem with the political boycotts that we've been talking about throughout the programmes is that they tend to be government-driven. They tend to use athletes as a kind of afterthought rather than than as something central to them, and therefore they have less impact.
0: If we're basically agreed, and I think we have, that uncoupling sport and politics is neither possible nor desirable, uh, and it's also the case that people who play sport, especially at an international level, do wield potentially extraordinary transformative political power. Have we got to the point of developing, do you think, any hard and fast rules about how to effectively deploy that? Are there, I guess I'm wondering, specific do's and don'ts?
3: I don't think we have, Andrew, and I think that's one of the problems because what we've tended to do in international sport is look for restrictive or constraining um protocols. So the IOC bans political gestures, for example. And if you look at the whole list of what a political gesture um, includes, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, so much so, and I didn't discover this till London 2012, because Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland compete under the Team GB banner, whereas of course we don't in most other sports, we compete as independent nations. It's actually. Waving our own flags, the Welsh flag or the Scottish flag, is actually banned in an uh, Olympic event, you know, which is crazy. You know, how on earth can it be a political gesture to wave your own flag at any major event? So this seems crazy to me. I mean, I appreciate the issues about, you know, gestures or symbols on medal podiums. I see what the risk is with that. But I but I think more generally, we need to have a more adult, mature conversation about how we allow athletes to actually express their views, like we saw in the 68 Olympics and in various other major sporting events, to give the credibility of the event and the credibility of the sport a little bit more clout. I don't think anything is gained by trying to suffocate the views and the beliefs and the values of athletes. And I think it would be really anomalous to suggest that athletes can't criticise their own countries as much as they might criticise another country, because no no country in the world has a completely pristine record on anything. Human rights, foreign policy, gender equality, racial equality, no country has a perfect record. Therefore, why, why on earth would we want to stop celebrities, people with a voice, from actually articulating their own beliefs on that. And, and it, sometimes the best criticism is the criticism of oneself and one's own community before one looks outward. And it gives more credibility to your outward looking criticism if you've already looked at your domestic situation too.
0: L- Laura, on the subject of the flags, I can remember similar chat ahead of the Sydney Olympics in 2000 and whether or not Cathy Freeman would be able to carry the Aboriginal flag should she happen to win the race. And of course she did, uh, in conjunction with the Australian national flag, and it was yeah w- one of the greatest moments in Australia's sporting history. It would seem an absolutely insane thing to deprive people of. We are coming to the point, I think, at which we, we should try to, to nail down some hard and fast conclusions. And the motion we came in on was the fairly bald declaration that boycotting sporting events helps no one. So I guess what I'll do there, Laura, I'll ask you first. Are you finding yourself basically for or against that motion, and if so, why?
3: Wow, it's a really tough one to nail for or against, isn't it? Because I don't believe it's fair to say sporting boycotts don't work. They often don't work as they were intended to, but there's usually some collateral impact of the boycott – Often positive, and therefore, maybe the boycott achieves something that was almost unintended, certainly in terms of raising awareness or having the more public conversations about the issues that stimulate the boycott. But I think it's fair to say that they are a blunt instrument. They very rarely achieve the goal of changing the reason why the boycott has come about. We talked about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, we talked about the 1936 games. But then when we talk about things like racial equality changes and anti-apartheid movements, we can see that boycotts have played a part. But it's back to the point I've made a few times. You need multi-actor interventions. Everyone needs to be aligned. There needs to be a clear goal from the boycott, and it needs to be really, really potent. And I'm afraid diplomatic boycotts don't fit any of those criteria.
0: Uh, And Fred, the same thought to you, that original motion, boycotting sporting events helps no one. Will you be casting your vote for yay or nay and why?
2: Uh, I would vote yay. Um, Just historically, we've seen they haven't been effective. As I mentioned earlier in the show, there there are exceptions when you try to... uh, focus on one country's participation that, that has worked in the case of South Africa and Rhodesia in the late 60s and early 70s. But I haven't seen much evidence of it working. And, and the diplomatic boycott is, is you know just a small shadow of that. I, I will say it's interesting, uh, just as an aside, in this country, the big push for a, a full-out boycott, while historically has been kind of from the left, and now it's from the right. You have senators like uh, U.S. Senator Tom Cotton that are saying that the diplomatic boycott doesn't go far enough. We should do a full-out boycott But, you know, uh, even if the United States were to boycott the the Olympics, the games would still go on. I don't think it's going to change China's behavior. And uh, China would almost definitely retaliate by boycotting the United States uh, Olympics in 2028.
0: That is all we have time for. Thanks once again to our guests, Laura McAllister and Fred Frommer. I'm Andrew Muller. You've been listening to The Sunday Debate with Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us.